Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we're speaking to the dream catchers. These are people who have gone after the dream and caught it. I'm so excited to have Lucinda Crichton with me today. She's the former Irish Member of Parliament. She was a TD for the constituency of Dublin Bay South, and she served as a Minister for European Affairs. She's gone on to found Vulcan Consultancy, where she's now the CEO. She's also a mother of three, aged eight, five, and three. I just wanted to say a big, big thank you so much for coming on the show today, Lucinda. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about kind of growing up and when was it for you that you had that spark of wanting to go into politics? Um, So I grew up in rural Ireland in County Mayo, which is in the West Coast. And um, I think, uh, I suppose back in the 80s, there, you know, there weren't multiple TV channels. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And uh, we had a pretty eventful kind of political uh, uh, dynamic at the time um, uh, between the sort of two kind of key figures in Irish politics, Gareth Fitzgerald and Charles J. Hawhey, um, both of whom served as Taoiseach or Prime Minister at different times. And uh, it was it was a it was kind of like a political drama that played out in real time and on TV and in the news and in the discourse I suppose so I think that piqued my interest um my mom as a primary school teacher was she's retired now but um she was very interested in politics and um and so that definitely sparked some interest from me and I just I just got really into it um bizarrely like when I was really young like six or seven I used to watch the news and I mean I was kind of normal otherwise like I wasn't a complete nerd or anything (laughs) but I just I just loved it you know and um you know, I think uh, for me, I mean, my family would have been split. My mom's family w- would have been a Fianna Fáil family, but she had totally rejected that. My dad's family probably was on the other side. So um, I didn't come with any sort of predefined view of who I should support or what I should believe. And so I kind of formed my own views as I went along and then, um, you know, got got just, you know, used to write about politics. I recall in secondary school, I used to write um, a lot of essays and I loved history. And uh, and then when I went to university, it was kind of natural that I would get involved in politics. Did you did you ever run for office when you were in school? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, actually, in, when I was in third class, so I would have been nine, um, we had a, kind of a simulated presidential election. So there was, there was an actual presidential election going on in Ireland at the time. And uh, and we got to sort of pick who we wanted to campaign for. So I chose Mary Robinson, who was um, a female candidate for president. We'd never had a female before. And I was her kind of campaign manager, director of elections in our class. And uh, I won the election in my class and then she won the actual presidential election. So (laughs) that was my first taste of running a political campaign in my class of 30 kids or whatever it was. That's amazing. And uh, and a successful one at that, even in real life. I love it. And so let me let me ask you a question. So for those of our listeners who aren't terribly familiar with Irish politics, so you've mentioned, um, you know, a few different um, a few different things here. One is you talked about a Taoiseach, which is obviously the prime minister. Mm-hmm. You talked about a president. You've talked about Fianna Fáil. Um, there's Fianna Gael. There's there's different. Can you talk about a little bit about 
the parties, like the fact that you've got a prime minister and you've got a president, just a, just a tiny bit of education for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the our system is a little bit similar to the British system, not surprisingly, because, you know, we were uh, we were occupied by our British neighbors for a very long time. Um, so our prime minister, I suppose, is is it's the executive functions, the head of government. It's 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 uh, it's, it's very much the same as uh, or similar to the UK. Um, the president is a little bit more like a monarch. Um, so it's a ceremonial role, but directly elected, of course, because it's a republic. Um, but, you know, he or she, it's a he at the moment, you know, performs sort of more cer- ceremonial duties, um, you know, hosting uh, state banquets and things like that when we're visiting dignitaries representing the country abroad but in principle the president can only articulate views that are approved by the government so they're not supposed to um, articulate political opinions um, now in practice that has there's been a bit of mission creep I would say in recent years but um, but that's sort of how it's envisaged under the constitution Um, so and actually you know some presidents have done a great job of um, using the role in a very sensitive way to do good things like um, Mary Robinson, um, you know, very much highlighted uh, things like famine in Africa. And she was very much focused on development and, and humanitarian work. And then Mary McAleese um, was uh, quite famous for, you know, her her support of the peace process and um, the role that she could play as a Northern Irish Catholic in that process and she hosted the first ever official visit of the queen in ireland so things like that mm. so that's that's the that's the distinction if you like between um our president and our Taoiseach or prime minister and then i mean traditionally ireland um since the foundation of the state which is uh roughly 100 years ago has been um defined by two political parties really both of whom are centrist parties um and uh really they weren't ideological ideologically derived they were derived from a civil war that unfortunately occurred in the island of Ireland um and uh you know people families were divided quite famously and people sort of chose whether they were Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil ended up um becoming the largest party and ruled uh, for the most part for those 100 years was in government more often than not my party the underdogs the Fine Gael party was more often than not in opposition that changed um, during the financial crisis um, uh, when Ireland entered an IMF bailout program back in 2010. And um, I was um, a part of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party that fought the election a couple of months later in 2011. And we ended up entering government under the um, the premiership of Enda Kenny, who was the party leader at the time and became Taoiseach and prime minister. Um, and that and that. Um, that uh, rupture, if you like, in terms of the financial crisis, didn't just obviously change Irish politics. It changed politics all over Europe. We saw, you know, the implosion of some huge political parties like the French centre right, the uh, the Spanish parties um, took quite a battering. Uh, it was it was a feature. I mean, also in Greece, Italy. I mean, most of the countries impacted by the financial crisis um, had a fairly significant change to their domestic politics, and it was the same in Ireland. So. Fianna Fáil is no longer the dominant party uh, here. And in fact, the biggest party in the state in terms of share of vote is now Sinn Féin, which is the party which um, uh, has for a very long time been associated with um, trouble in Northern Ireland. And of course, the um, dissident um, uh, Republican movement um, um, slash terrorist group, the IRA, 
Um, but that party has since renounced violence and is uh, now part of the demo- democratic process in Ireland, both north and south. How That's a very long-winded yes. <laughs> no, overview. Thank you. So. <laughs> Our listeners are now educated, so thank you for that. Um, so going back, so you you started, you said you watched, you know, very few television channels, but really enjoyed watching politics, something your mom was involved in and got you involved in. Um, I think you mentioned that she was Fianna Fáil, though. Is that right? Is that is that who? Her family were. So okay. the, that tribalism that that existed in Irish politics, her whole family were Fianna Fáilers. They mm. would have campaigned and canvassed. My mother was not. She she oh, very nice. much kind of turned her back on that. Um, she wasn't active in politics. She wasn't in any way involved or a member of any political party, but she just, I suppose, was interested and had had views. Um, uh, so, yeah, no, I, I suppose I forged my own path in that sense. Nobody in my family was ever um, involved in electoral politics before me on either that. side. And, and what I love about it is the fact that you were able to make your own determinations that you, you know, you studied it, you listened, you you watched what you were seeing in front of you. And actually, I think so often, you know, coming from from a U.S. background, especially is you adopt whatever party your parents were part of. And mm-hmm. a lot of times people say, you know, um, if you're not a Democrat when you're young, you have no soul. If you're not a Republican when you're older, you don't have any money. So, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think there's also a lot there around that. I, I know within our family, you know, there's a lot of people that support one party and then there's a few people that support another. And it's very intense discussions and in trying to make that decision about, you know, your own choices around what you believe and what you think are very mm-hmm. wrapped up in a lot of different things and is that it sounds like that's very similar in Ireland in terms of kind of what your family is and is there also that social aspect in terms of in the U.S. you know there are certain social aspects that are affiliated with Democrats or with Republicans yeah I mean I suppose um it's evolved over the years and over the century really um um since since the foundation of the state so um, Fianna Fáil was a big popular party, you know, which is a very European phenomenon in a way, because they managed to straddle the sort of the centre and a bit of the centre left and centre right. So they would have been big in rural areas. Mm. They would have been big in working class urban areas, but there also would have been, a, you know, an affluent business community who supported them. So that's why so that's why they dominated the political landscape for so long. Fine Gael would have um, been considered to be a little bit more elitist. Um you know, like these are these are more perceptions and portrayals necessarily mm. more than than uh, than reality. Certainly, Finnegan would have not done as well in working class urban areas, but would have um, would have had a lot of support in all rural constituencies and probably in maybe the more affluent parts of Dublin and the other cities around Ireland. Um, but I mean, you know, the, the distinction between the two parties was, was and in my view remains so minimal. I mean, mm. You know, when I was elected um, after the financial crisis, I was already a TD since the previous election, member of parliament since the previous election. When I was elected in 2011, most of the votes that came to my party had just come directly from Fianna Fáil. So even even though there had been that tribal separation, in in fact, when people lost faith in Fianna Fáil, the natural home for them was to to go and vote for Fine Gael. Mm. Um, and even now, when you see fluctuation in the in both parties, share of the vote has contracted dramatically. But even so, when you see opinion polling from week to week, month to month, month most of it is from Fine Gael to Fianna Fáil, and it, it's kind of it's kind of moving between the two political parties. So they're in a battle really for the centre ground against each other. Mm, and there isn't a whole lot of distinction. Yeah, 
So, so what was it in terms of, so I know that you, you said you went Fine Gael and uh, you know yeah. that we're going to get into university and kind of how that developed for you, but what was it that made you lean towards Fine Gael over Fianna Fáil then? Um, well, for me, um, I suppose it certainly wasn't a, a family uh, connection. It was more, um, I think, a, a sense that Fianna Fáil was more nationalist um, and that's something that has never appealed to me. Um, and nationalist and a little bit more nativist, perhaps. And I, what I really liked about Fine Gael at the time was its sort of internationalist outlook. And particularly its commitment to the European project, the European Union. Um, and and really, I think, you know, and also I think Fidegel probably would have been viewed as being a little bit more on the liberal economic side um, of the political divide. Now, as I say, Fianna Fáil straddled that very, very well. I mean, yeah. so um but but certainly that was kind of the the philosophy that that appealed to me um when i joined finnegale i was in college and uh, a man called john bruton was the party leader um and john is somebody whose values and um sort of political perspective very much appealed to me and still do today and he's he's still a, a good friend and and somebody that i very much admire so that definitely p- played a part he was very uh, involved in the European People's Party, which became a big part of my political um, existence as well. So, um, you know, people like him were definitely role models to me. And Garrett Fitzgerald, who um, mm. had been um, foreign minister and Taoiseach in the 80s and uh, was also formerly a, a TD in my own constituency. So everybody who camp or many of the people who campaigned with me had, you know, a couple of decades earlier campaigned for Garrett Fitzgerald and he was uh, he was a, a brilliant man you know um who who uh, was thoroughly decent and decency matters a lot um and he also you know had that very strong uh, european perspective which to me was the future for ireland you know as a country that had been so economically deprived and so on you know the eu opened up so many new possibilities for for ireland as a country and as it transpires that's exactly what happened you know it's been it transformed ireland in every respect hmm. i had i had the absolute honor of meeting john bruton when i was um in law school and i had, did a round table with him and i was chosen because i was studying international trade and eu comparative law and they were talking about poland coming into the eu and it was uh, I just remember speaking to him because my mother-in-law is Polish and we were talking about kind of the farmers and how do you get the farmers on board? And it was yeah. just it was. Yeah, it was it was. Wow. incredible. And I absolutely I, I mean, that that memory will stay with me forever because I agree with you. He was such a lovely person, mm-hmm. like just actually speaking to him in a room. And I, I'd been in politics in the U.S. and it was a very, very different feel from mm-hmm. any of the politicians that I'd met. He just was a genuinely lovely person. And. Um, same, yeah. same with um, Enda as well. Enda Kenny was in the UK and I met him at a night out. I think uh, my husband George had been invited because he was affiliated with the young Fine Gael back in the day. And That's right. I met him, George again, ca- campaigned for me. <laughs> he did indeed. And, uh, but that was 100%, again, just mm-hmm. really genuinely lovely people. So I can see that draw in terms of the leadership that was there around Fine Gael. Um, but this is dream catchers, so we have to go back to your dream. So we're 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 a young person enjoying mm. politics, kind of mm-hmm. um, making our way. So when when did this all start for you then, in terms of this journey to to becoming TD, to becoming a member of Parliament? Um, 
Uh, well, funnily enough, I mean, when I was when I was young, I mean, when I was really young, I used to tell all my friends in school that I was going to be the first female Taoiseach in Ireland. You know, that was my sort of stated ambition. Now, obviously, as I got older, you know, I had interest in other things and, you know, I mightn't have necessarily pursued that particular objective with 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 total commitment or rigor. But um, I always knew I was really interested in politics. And I think when I was deciding what to study in university, um, I decided to study law and it really wasn't because I was interested in law particularly. I mean, I had we'd had a couple of careers talks from some lawyers and I'd been down to the four courts in Dublin and I'd seen a few um, pretty interesting merger trials and things like that. So like I wasn't I wasn't opposed to the idea of a career in law, but really I think I chose to study law because I thought it would be a good basis for a career somehow in politics, maybe in elective politics, but maybe maybe in just the margins of political life. I wasn't sure. Um, so that's why I studied law. And actually, I didn't really like it very much at all. Um, I, I studied in Trinity and it was great. Trinity's best university in the world, of course, but um, I didn't. <laughs> no bias. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but I didn't love law at all. I mean, I found it pretty turgid. And uh, I mean, you know, books and books of case law and stuff it just it didn't excite me at all um so I spent most of my time involved in youth politics I joined Trinity Young Fine Gael my first week in college on Freshers Week um and it, it sort of gradually took over my life you know um to the point that when I was doing my finals I was actually working for my local TD as a policy advisor um Francis Fitzgerald um, mm. And uh, I spent a hell of a lot more time on the campaign trail in 2002 in that election than I did um, studying for my finals, which probably showed my grades at the end of it all. But um, so um, so that was kind of where I really got involved in politics and mm. uh, I absolutely loved it. I became involved in Young for the Girls International Committee. I became involved in the Youth of the European People's Party. And in uh, actually just after that election in 02, I was selected to represent kind of the Irish government in the Youth Convention on the Future of Europe, which John Britton actually was um, was on the grown up version. He was on the actual convention the actual on the future one. of Europe. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, they created this youth convention to consult with the youth. And uh, Leo Varadkar, who you might have heard of, and myself <laughs> were two of the people who were selected to go and participate in that. And that was amazing. We spent like two weeks in Brussels, sitting in the European Parliament plenary chamber, you know, debating all of these really important issues um, about the future of Europe, you know, everything from security and defence policy to voting systems to um, you know, to the to the size of the institutions, all of the same issues that were being discussed at the convention. And then we actually had joint sittings with uh, members of the convention, including John Bruton. So it was it was um, it so was really cool. amazing. And yeah. It was definitely uh, galvanized for me that I just I just loved being part of these policy debates. It was amazing. Yeah. And um, for those listeners who don't know, uh, Leo Varadkar is currently uh, the Taoiseach, the uh, prime minister at the moment. He's he's in right now. Right. Because I know he's. Yes, yes he is. Yeah. Yeah. He's in, in the, at the moment. He's in. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's yeah, that's who we're referring to there. Um, what what's really interesting is you kind of stepping into that that space and going into this convention. You know, sometimes, again, as you said, you did law. You got in there and you saw this isn't for me. And, you know, I can imagine you could have stepped into that convention and been in the middle of that and been like, actually, this is so boring. This is not for me. But it sounds like it was just the opposite for you. Yeah. And it really kind of ignited that fire. Totally. It was so cool. And I remember, you know, we like obviously we were there with friends from all over Europe who we knew through youth politics and 
um, they were some of them were there as part of national delegations and and in different sort of diff, through different routes, shall we say? Um, and I re I recall like we you know being in the an MEP's office at like 10 o'clock at night drafting amendments to the text and it was like our lives depended on it like this like as if Europe really depended on us you know so we might have had a bit of an inflated sense of sort of what we were actually doing but it, it you know it was just it was really cool and all of that collaboration with um with people from other other European countries and um, just learning the process and the system and learning how to draft amendments and mm -hmm. to write position papers and 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 really get stuck into the policy. And for me, that's what politics has always been about. And it remained my view as as a as a councillor, as a member of, of the national parliament and as a minister. And it's still what I love today in my current business, which is pretty much the same thing, except we're on the other side of the fence, you know. Yeah. And, and I think there's, there's so much there. Um, so I, I did model United Nations. Um, that was my, that was my prison. Brilliant. Same, same though. Exactly. You, you really yeah. do. It's like, you are absolutely in the moment and yeah. <laughs> totally. You can, Kofi and Anne. You really do. I was <laughs> yeah. not yeah. going to lie, yeah. but yeah, hundred percent, you get into it. And I think, yeah. I think what's really important uh, about that is the type of experience that you get is you're learning something. So you know, you go to university and you sit in lectures and you do things. And, and I, I mean, there there's learning that is done within the university system. But I think yeah. what I learned doing Model United Nations or what I learned doing, you know, you know, for you, young Fine Gael, or you learn doing something outside of it. Actually, that's more the practical stuff that you take yes. with you. And I think just translating that into people who are listening, who are in the business world is a lot of times when you're shifting into something else, mm -hmm. you're doing your everyday job, but you can actually do experiences outside of that, that allow you to develop that skill that's moving you towards the direction of what you want to go in. And sometimes you can find that within your organization. Sometimes you can find that in volunteering. Sometimes you can find that in other areas. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, and that's, and that's how you develop that passion as well is sort of, you know, you find out, do I love this? Do I not? Because it's as important mm -hmm. to know what you don't want to do as it is to know what you do. Absolutely. hundred percent. And uh, I, I, I'm, everybody's different and people arrive at these conclusions in different ways I'm pretty much a snap instant decision type of person so you know um I think uh I've I've always kind of followed the the things that that excite me and that I have that passion about other people maybe are more cautious I'm probably not a cautious person I'm probably a little bit maybe intuitive and I think for others, they need to spend more time exploring but that's the value of what you're talking about you know trying out different things and and really sensing it out and making a, a decision, you know, based on what you've experienced. Mm. So. And I also just want to talk about your network here. So, you know, you've, you've talked about John Bruton. He's kind of got a lovely thread throughout your career. And then also just even the people that you would have met in youth politics from other people across Europe. I assume they, like you, ended up stepping into MEP type roles and, and you know, stepping yeah. into different roles that actually you were then probably working with them on a professional basis yeah. later on. Absolutely. Yeah. So I suppose the youth of EPP for me was um, a huge network. So not only um, does the European People's Party en encompass EU member states, but also, you know, other European countries that are not yet in the EU. Um, 
So I would have made a lot of connections in the Balkans, for example, and mm. in places like Moldova and even Belarus. Um, so it was an unbelievable exposure to people whose lives were so fundamentally different, like living under a dictatorship, under Lukashenko, for example, mm. um, going to meetings with um, people my age whose friends had been imprisoned uh, for dissenting against the political um, orthodoxy in a particular country. So amazing. And then... Yeah, as my career progressed, um, uh, well, certainly when I was uh, elected to parliament, um, you know, some of my peers were also either councillors or in, in their local authorities or had had become members of parliament and um, and, and 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 onwards, you know, into into ministerial office as well. So, like, for example, Jyrki Katainen, who became prime minister of Finland and also vice president of the European Commission. He was um, on the board of the Youth of EPP with Leo and uh, just the board before me. Um, so wow. um, I knew him really well when he was like a young first term member of parliament. And then, you know, he went on, obviously, to to lead his country. Um, and, you know, he's somebody that, of course, is, is a friend. I don't I don't see him very often, but, you know, it, we'll always have that connection, I suppose. Um, some of my friends became members of the European Parliament. Um there was a Polish girl that I was really friendly with, and she used to tell me stories about her family in America, you know, sewing uh, dollars into their clothes, into clothes and posting them to her mother when they lived behind the Iron Curtain. You know, so um, and that was a real lived experience of somebody who then went who was part of the youth of EPP and then went on to be a member of the European Parliament um, and somebody that I would certainly regard as a friend today. Um, and, you know, the list goes on. Roberta Mazzola, who is now president of the European Parliament, um, was in uh, youth politics with Leo and I. And actually, she and Leo have the exact same birthday. Um, and I'm a, I'm a year younger and my birthday is two days later. So we used to celebrate our birthday together at, you know, at events that we were that we were at. So, yeah, I mean, you just make those connections and you, you sort of you have them for life, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, that's what we've talked a lot about in this podcast is that network and the fact that um, we, we, you know, we have a network from when we're young. And, you know, I always joke that my dad constantly was looking around in high school being like, this is your network, you know, keep the network alive. He doesn't speak like that at all, but that's my, <laughs> that's my dad voice. Uh, but, you know, that's the, just noting what your network is, because a lot of times we think our network is, is much smaller than what it actually is. And when you think about it and you start to reach out and now with LinkedIn and Facebook and, you know, um, Instagram, whatever it is, we have that, we have an even wider network now available to us than we even did previously. Yeah. So it's tapping yeah. into that and um, and making sure that you're utilizing that network. Because as you've said, it, it is, it's an incredible asset to have. It is, yeah. And maintaining it. I mean, I suppose that's yeah. the thing where, especially yeah. as life gets busier and you end up having kids and family and you know you're pulled in so many more directions than when you were in your 20s um that becomes more difficult you know um and it, it requires a more conscious effort I think and I also think that COVID has really interfered with that because people you know were just like hunkered down for two 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 to three years um and getting back out there is really important too I mean you, you certainly LinkedIn is amazing and you know, I've reconnected with people that I haven't seen in 20 years through LinkedIn, but also, you know, there's no substitute for actually, you know, physically in person, you know, catching up with old friends and, and contacts and connections for a coffee or for lunch or whatever. And that's something I'm actually consciously trying to do again because you, you just out of the habit because of COVID, you know. 
Yeah, fully agree. And also that serendipity of meeting up with people is gone or it was yeah. gone and now it's starting to come back. But you just yeah. that just that running into somebody or, you know, even seeing somebody in an airport. And there's so much there's so much serendipity that was lost during that time and kind of trying to get that back again. I, I fully, fully agree with that. OK, so we're back back to dream catchers. So we have now caught this dream of becoming. Well, we haven't reached T-Shock yet. I say yet, you never know. <laughs> you, you might come back for it. Um, but uh, but we've reached the point where, you know, you are now a member of parliament. As you said, you know, you're working within within the European Union as well as a minister of European affairs. So, I mean, this is dream catcher stuff. This is like you are, you have you have done something incredible within politics. When you got there, having done kind of the youth stuff, having you know been on campaigns, having campaigned for others, having gone through the campaign yourself, was it all it was cracked up to be? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, this is this where I deflate everybody's uh, hopes and expectations. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, so yes and no. Um, I found actually um, being a member of Parliament, I found. Uh, definitely did not live up to my expectations you know I found uh, I expected a lot of collegiality within my parliamentary party that was the first um, uh, expectation that was entirely dashed um, because you very quickly realize that actually a lot of it is um, well it's it's competition and competition is to be expected but it's not very kind of healthy competition so there's a lot of people who get in, involved in politics because they actually enjoy the Machiavellian side of it that's not the part that appealed to me I have to say not that I wasn't able to do it but like wasn't why I was there so um I found that pretty shocking actually um mm. uh I had been a member of Dublin City Council for a few years before I was elected to the parliament and we had a really good group on the council there were 10 of us from my par my party and we we supported each other and we worked really closely together I mean not that everybody got on all the time you know I mean it's the real world but Overall, there was a real sense of common purpose. Uh, I certainly did not find that in my in my parliamentary party when I was elected to parliament. Um, there was a lot of misogyny, a lot of sort of who do you think you are? Um, mm -hmm. And I had never really encountered that before. Like my whole existence up to that point had been sort of a, a world of possibilities. You know, I was always told as a kid, you know, you can do what you want. You can be not do what you want, but you know what I mean? You can be what you want to be. You know, don't limit your horizons, you know you know shoot for the moon sort of thing and then suddenly you know you're surrounded by people who actually seem to take pleasure in kind of cutting the feet out from under you you know so I didn't enjoy that at all and I never adapted to that I never I never enjoyed it um but um so that was the downside um obviously it's a huge huge honor to represent your constituency and to be a member of the national parliament um and I did enjoy you know the policy and parliamentary work for sure um but really the highlight of my career was was um uh, of my political career was um was being minister for european affairs because that really felt meaningful i worked with fantastic people i mean i've just come from a meeting with with one of them you know um who's now working for a global tech company but um you know i i just had an, an amazing uh, experience and I, it was at a time when ireland was um in the doldrums you know as i mentioned uh, earlier we had entered an imf bailout program just a few months before we came into office and it was like right you know it was scorched earth things could not be worse the country was demoralized it was broke 
the civil servants that I was dealing with in um, the two departments that I worked in, the Department of the Taoiseach, which is the Prime Minister's office, and the Department of Foreign Affairs, um, were totally demoralized and were just looking for, you know, purpose and positivity and new a new agenda, you know, which is what we tried to offer. Um, so that was an amazing experience. And uh, I spent two and a half years as Minister for European Affairs and it was it was it was amazing. Um, and it felt like we achieved things that were really meaningful and really mattered for, for the country. So it doesn't get better than that in politics, I don't think. Yeah. And did that did you find that congeniality there? Was that was that something that actually was present there that wasn't necessarily within the party politics? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what I found, I, and it was probably, you know, maybe if I went in uh, as a minister today, you know, there'd be a fatigue. Oh, here comes another one, um, mm. you know, and how long, you know, for two or three years and there'll be somebody else after that. And of course, I'm sure civil servants become tired of seeing the revolving door of ministers. But at the time they had they were they were just so broken by what had happened, you know, because they were, of course, getting the blame for you know the mm. the sort of economic implosion and i recall one very senior civil servant he was he, he still is and he's still actually still a, he's he's an even more senior civil servant now um and he came into my office and he sat down and i i was i was going to be working closely with him and he said you know we're you know we are just so delighted that you guys are here and we are you know we just want to sort of work with you to improve the situation for the country and you know you know we will be guided by you and we will work with you because that's not always the case I mean we've all seen yes minister and it is reality I mean like there's a a long history of you know civil servants sort of sometimes obstructing ministers or certainly not rowing in behind political agenda but you know I mean I just I thought his attitude was amazing he was like you don't know how down we are and we want this to work and we will do everything we can to support you and it was like we just had a great relationship from the very outset and uh, and I worked with marvelous genuinely wonderful people um, both in our permanent representation in Brussels and in um, and in government in Dublin, and I had I also had the privilege of chairing several interdepartmental groups. So I would have worked with assistant secretaries general from all of our government ministries and secretaries general from all of our government ministries, because I had to coordinate EU affairs, which of course touches every government ministry. So that was that was really um, really interesting and rewarding work um, that I enjoyed very much, as well as all of my overseas travel, which was extensive, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. And and what I find also is when you hit those times of crisis, a lot of times the kind of, for lack of a better word, the politics um, that sometimes come out, you know, they they take a back burner because it's like, actually, we're all in the same boat. We're all rowing together here. Yeah. You know, let's get on board and let's do this together. So it sounds like the timing of it was a really difficult time in, yeah. you know, in, for Ireland as a country, but actually mm-hmm. for you as a minister stepping in there gave you that opportunity to make and affect real change, which yeah. sounds like even just hearing you talk about it, sounds like it was this incredible experience that really gave back to you and that kind of thing that you go into politics for, like exactly. people that go into politics that aren't going into it just to be a powerful whatever, you know, it's actually, yeah. that's why you do it to affect that change. Exactly. 100%. And that's what makes it rewarding and enjoyable and 
you know, gives you a sense of purpose. So, um, yeah, that was, it was a, it was a great experience for sure. That's incredible. And, and so you've, you've moved on from politics. So when, when did this all come to an end and now you're, you have your own consulting business. Tell us a bit about what you're doing now. Cause I know it's, as you said, it's the other side of the table, but it's actually all kind of still part of this dream, but it's almost like the next dream. It feels like. Yeah. I mean, this was a, a, a much more accidental dream. Well, I mean, ultimately running for politics was a bit of an accident too. I mean, I hadn't mapped out that I would be, you know, selected to run for election when I was 23. I mean, that definitely wasn't. I mean, I was probably thinking like, you know, you look at politicians and you think, oh, they're all really old, old. <laughs> like my age now, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I certainly didn't plan. Um, and I think, I think anybody who thinks they can plan a political career, you know, generally speaking, it doesn't work according to the plan. You know, it's it's very much serendipity and all sorts of other other things um come into play but um so so and a bit like that i suppose um i when i uh, left politics in 2016 i had no idea what i was going to do um and i uh, through you know various cups of coffees and discussions with people and friends and contacts uh i was offered um or was asked to uh to take up a role uh, working for a US NGO uh, in Europe. And by that stage, I had pretty much decided that I didn't want to work full-time for anybody. Mm. Um, so I said, so the guy flew in and we met for lunch in Dublin. And I said, look, I would love to do this work. It sounds really interesting, but I would you consider hiring me as a consultant rather than as a sort of an employee? And uh, he said, sure. Amazing. So suddenly I had a client and I had a newly established limited company mm -hmm. and um, I kind of started from there and um, I didn't have a grand plan. I, I didn't have a plan to to grow a consulting business or anything, really. I just had a company that I set up, you know, in 20 minutes online at my kitchen table and uh, a client that had sort of come to me through through some channels um, and uh, and it kind of evolved from there and you know by the end of the, that summer I had um I had hired somebody to work for me and I had um I had uh sort of decided that I was going to go and look for other clients and um and then kind of as the as the autumn and the winter progressed I I I went and found a few more and, and that was it that's incredible. I love I love the snap decision. We talked about how you make the snap decisions yeah. you're like 20 minutes kitchen table how did you come up with the name that quickly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the one thing I was sure of is I didn't want it to be like my name, you know, like uh, like one of those American law firms, you know, Grayson <laughs> Creighton and Baker or something. <laughs> um, so so um, I, I was really struggling, actually. And uh, then I decided I would call it after um, a kind of a periodical that a few of us pretentiously launched when we were in Trinity. So myself and Leo um who we mentioned earlier and a guy called John Carroll who's actually now the secretary general of Fine Gael. um we were all in young Fine Gael in Trinity together and uh we were all interested in foreign policy so we launched this you know heavyweight uh periodical called the Vulcan nice. the Vulcan being the god of fire yeah and uh I think we probably only published about two editions and we were probably the only three people to read it but uh, anyway I just thought it'd be a nice kind of like nod to 
you know uh my sort of political past and nostalgia etc so that's that's where the name Vulcan came from that's fantastic and and I just want to touch on the point that you know as as a female as a woman a lot of times when people um come with you to something you know we have we have more of a people pleasing aspect to us than men do it's just it's a it's a known fact I don't know why it comes in I don't know what it is about it mm. but you know uh, for a lot of us when a US NGO flies over to Dublin, takes you out and winds you down you for lunch, it's a really good job. You know, it's something that interests you, it's something, and you, but saying no, but not just saying no, saying no, but can I actually, you know, can I consult for you? I mean, it's amazing. And I, I love the fact that you had the tenacity to do that. And I want to just encourage more people to do that is ask for what you want. Don't sit there and just take what's given to you because it looks good or it's a good offer. Actually, is it good enough? Is it what you want to do? Is it part of the dream? You know, for mm. you, you didn't want to work for anybody anymore. So now you're able to get somebody as a client and then you're able to build this empire around that where you're now being able to consult with a lot of different people mm. and you're getting to do what you want to do and on your own terms. So yeah. I just, I find that so encouraging. And I just wanted to make sure we didn't just jump <laughs> over that point. That's amazing. I never really thought of it like that to, to be honest. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I don't see. I, I suppose one of, maybe one of my downfalls, but sometimes it's one of my strengths is that I don't overanalyze things. I really don't. I never have. I just sort of, you know, go with, sometimes go with my gut and, and, uh, and also, you know, um, just what I'm comfortable with, I suppose. And that's always been the way. And, you know, maybe, maybe it caused me problems, you know, in my career at times, I'm sure it did. And, you know, especially as a woman, I think you can be branded as being difficult or, oh, you know, awkward or not compliant or whatever. And I certainly have had that, those kind of labels, uh, um sort of thrown at me at different stages but um yeah I mean I think you just have to yeah not make apologies and just get on with it you know and I think you know for me you've got to be straight with people and you've got to be upfront, but always respectful and decent you know and um that really matters and uh, you know there are qualities that maybe not everybody is mindful of all the time so um yeah yeah, respectful and decent, but upfront. So you can be direct, you can be upfront, but be respectful and be decent about it. It's, yeah, yeah, pretty exactly. straightforward. It's pretty yeah. simple. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um. So I I don't want this conversation to end, but we are getting close to it. So I have to ask you our two final questions. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, you know, this is quite a journey that you've been on. Um. You know, moving into politics officially, and then going and starting your own business. What have you discovered about yourself along the way? Um, probably, I mean, probably that. I, I mean, because, you know, I'm not somebody who over overanalyzes things. So I don't really, I, I remember sitting uh, after I decided to run for Dublin City Council back in, you know, when I was in my early 20s. And I was having lunch on the grass in Marion Square, which is a lovely park around, uh, around the corner from the parliament, actually. Um, and my friend said, you know, I just love the way you just make up your mind and you, to do things and you just go and do them. And I said, really? I, like that hadn't even occurred to me. You know, she was, she was like, yeah, like, I think that's a, that's a quality that, you know, is actually not that usual. And it's, it's, it's a good thing. You know, I wasn't sure if she was saying it was a good thing or a bad <laughs> thing, but, um, but I hadn't even thought about it. So um, I suppose that's what I've discovered maybe about myself is that I, I have a tendency to just kind of take decisions and, not, I mean, not that I don't think about them, but I, I think about them pretty quickly. And I'm, 
evaluate and, and just go. And I think you don't waste time. You also don't miss opportunities. Of course, you make mistakes that way. But like life is all about making mistakes, but you you're less likely to miss opportunities that way, which I think is is a really good thing. So, um, yeah. yeah, so that's something that I would never have known about myself. She pointed it out to me. And I suppose like 20, 20 years later, I can probably say, yeah, I, I see that now. Yeah, I love that idea of if you don't take the risk, you can miss the opportunity. And yes, you mm-hmm. may have failings, you may have things that you learn along the way. And that's, you know, failing really great acronym for that first attempt in learning. So you may, it may be a failure, but you're learning something from that. And the other thing that's underneath all of that, Lucinda, is that you trust yourself. Because yeah. if you didn't trust yourself, you wouldn't be able to make those snap decisions and be able to move forward with it. Because you trust yeah. that you can do it. You trust that you, you know, you've done it before. I can do it again. Even if it doesn't work, we'll try something new. Yeah. I mean, that that's a, I think that's a, that's a really inspirational thing to hear. And I think it's an inspirational way to live. So that's cool. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And our final question that we ask all of our guests is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received or heard or something you kind of a mantra that you've lived by? Um, So I suppose it's probably connected, but I suppose my dad, um, my dad was, um, you know, like I grew up in the West of Ireland and uh, my dad was, um, you know, from a rural traditional family, of course, um, but he, I think he was, he was very futuristic. I mean, he had two daughters, myself, and my sister, Neve, and, you know, what he taught us was, you know, everything and anything is possible, you know, so you want to do this thing, then you go and do it and you can do it. You're capable of it, you know? So I think, um, I think just that, that sense of there are no limits, you know, there is no ceiling to what you can achieve if you put your mind to it. And that was kind of the advice that he gave me all through my childhood and um, as I got older um, and he's no longer with us, but that stays with me. And that that belief that he had in us and that, you know, that, that he instilled in us, I suppose, to 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 believe that we could be whatever we wanted to be. And I think that that's kind of it's simplistic advice. But, you know, so many people are told, no, you can't do that or, you know, that's ridiculous or you know, that's that, you know, that dream or that goal is for somebody else. I think that that was like literally that was bred into us. Um, and I, I very much appreciate that. And I think we were really privileged because I've never really I mean, as I say, until I was like elected to parliament, I never really experienced misogyny or a sense that because I was a girl, I couldn't do something because my dad just told me I could do whatever I wanted, really. Um, not without you know, I don't mean whatever I wanted in the kind of bratty sense. Um, like a, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can smoke Eat when you're chocolate all day. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, more, you know, just believing that you can achieve and that there, you know, there's no difference between you as a girl and any of the guys or anybody else from any other, you know, walk of life. You know, we're all equal, and you just strive for things and you go and go and get them. And that definitely is something that has um, has I think. Um, to find sort of how I live and uh, hopefully I can instill that in my in my kids as well what a great dad I mean I, I absolutely love that and I think um I think more dads like that would help to empower more women to be honest because absolutely. it is yeah, yeah. It, it just amazing. sets you up for success and the other mm-hmm. thing I want to touch on there is you know you talk about other people putting restrictions on you and saying you can't do that but there's also a lot of us have self-limiting beliefs that we've created for ourselves and so we tell ourselves well that's great for Lucinda you know she got to do that she had this she had that but I could never do that 
And that's what I would challenge uh, listeners to really listen to that voice and reject that and stop telling yourself that because the more you tell yourself that, the more likely it's going to come to fruition. I think that's a really important point. And I recall actually, you know, um, when I was elected uh, first, um, I just remember uh, somebody that I kind of knew, but not very well, sort of saying, oh, well, you know, it's easy for somebody like her because she's got she's had a privileged, uh, privileged upbringing or something. I was thinking, what? Like my dad left school when he was 13, you know, mm. um, you know, he worked, uh, he worked full time all day and also worked like five night, nights a week. And that's what was instilled in us. He had nothing easy. We had nothing easy, you know, and and uh, and the idea that you can assume that about somebody, um, I think, is 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 just so far off the mark. So I think, um, you know, it really does come down to like I I really believe you have to not look at what other people are doing and not mm. judge or benchmark yourself against others. It's the worst thing you do. Sometimes I go on LinkedIn and I look at, I oh my god, you know that person is yeah, vice so president. Much. Oh my god, yeah. that's amazing. Mm. And I'm like, well, you know what? You know who cares? Good for them. That's yeah. great. Yeah. You got to focus on just doing your own thing and you know be your own person and like that's that's really all you can do, isn't it? No, I I fully agree with that. And I think there's also that, you know, I say the comparison game is a game that no one wins. That's, you know, that's my, yeah. Yeah. And also you never know what's going on in somebody else's life. I know, I know you, I mean, there's, and you, you even know, sometimes you do know what's going on in someone's life and then you see what they're projecting to the world and you're like, "Mm, (laughs) that's not really true. Yeah, just be authentic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be authentic and do do your best and support other people along the way. Like that's, you know, yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Well, Lucinda, I, I'm so sad to bring this to an end. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. Thank you for sharing your dream with us. And thank you for sharing um, what you've accomplished so far. And what I'm looking forward to is what comes next, because I think world domination is in store. <laughs> no, I'm I'm exhausted. <laughs> You're like, I have three kids at home. I've got my yeah. own business to run. We're doing all right. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Kimberly. It's lovely talking to you and really nice to to, to see you. Thanks for coming on the show, Lucinda. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Join us next time when I speak to Nicole Perry, a professional chef and the owner of the catering company, The Curious. She used to be chef to Richard Branson and Madonna, so she's got some great stories to share. You won't want to miss this one. If you're looking for an executive coach or if something from this episode resonated with you, I'd love to hear from you. Check out my website at kljconsulting.co.uk or email me on the Undiscovered You podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support me in putting out more content, why not buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash undiscovered you. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you're one step closer to discovering the undiscovered you. Thank you.